If you would, as we turn to consider for the second time the, uh, the fourth commandment, we've been walking through the, uh, the commandments together. We've been last week and this week we're in the fourth commandment. And um, if you would, actually, if we t- as we look at this commandment, I think it's worthwhile looking back at the summons to the word that we just read ourselves. I'm going to grab my Bible here. Looking back at that summons to the word found in your bulletin. Read it for yourself silently for a second. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's the case that the road to destruction, the word destruction here has to do just with a sense of ruin, the, the road to ruin, the road to self-sabotage, the road to life just coming unraveled, at this, at just life and relationships and whatever just being this thing that we never intended to be. Why is it that the road to destruction is wide? The gate is wide and the, the, the road is broad. Think about that. And many enter through it. Why is it that so many, so many people's lives leads, lead, so many people's lives uh, lead to destruction? Why is it that so many people get to the age 50, 60, 70 and they look back and they think, I so wish I could have done it differently? Why is it that so, that, that so few Find the road that leads to life. Find the gate that leads to life. Sobering words. What is it about us that we just can't seem to find the way ourselves? I met a man uh, not too long ago. It was um, just here in St. Louis about a month ago. And we were talking about, we, 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 sh- we started talking. We realized that we were both in the military. And he said to me, he said, the military was the single best thing that ever happened to me. He went in at like 17, 18 and enlisted. And of course, that prompted the question, why? I was really curious. Why, why, why was it? that? What was, so, what was so good about the military? And he said this, it forced me to do things I didn't want to do. Things that I finally came about, I finally came to realize were really good for me. Huh. It's interesting, isn't it? What, what, what is it that just... just it didn't occur to him as a young man. He just didn't, apparently just didn't know. He didn't see things that he said, I finally came to realize were really good to me. It's interesting. What if the things that are really good for us are actually really counterintuitive? You know, in the Clark household, we uh, don't go out to eat a lot. We, um, the first reason is because it's relatively expensive. And second, more often than not, as I'm eating the food, I usually think, in fact, I often say something like, Sarah could do better. And this is good food, whatever, but, but actually Sarah could do better. She's, she's an amazing chef. And we have, we have four kids and one on the way. And what's wonderful is that despite a lot of our parenting failures, and there are many of them, one of the things that we've managed to do through much um, turmoil and tears is that we've trained them to like what Sarah is making. We've trained them to like the food that Sarah is making. And, and it's wonderful. We can sit around the dinner table, ooing and aahing together, enjoying the food together. And my kids are not allowed to come to the table to sniff at the food and sit in judgment of whether or not this is for them or not. Why is that? Because as little ones, as little ones, and they're really not there anymore, but as little ones, their palate is pathetic, right? They haven't yet learned, they don't yet know what is good and what's bad. They're not there yet. 
And if someone, if someone, someone, one of them were to say, this is yucky, I don't like this, guess what I would say? I would say very gently and yet very firmly, sweetheart, no one cares. And so through much discipline, some more than others, the Clark family meals are a feast of fellowship, a sharing of wine, a sharing of our whims, and a sharing of our woes. And it becomes a ritual. And sometimes some meals are just kind of quiet and just, we don't, you know, there's not much. But other times, like last night was a great example. We barbecued and we, we just had a great time together. Eating, we had like went out and bought like a ton of ice cream, you know, and just blah, right? And we watched a movie, just had a phenomenal time sharing. Rosemary shared about her day, and we all shared about what was going on. It was a beautiful day, so we were outside most of the day. We're hanging out with our neighbors. We live on a cul-de-sac, and just over the last three or four years, providentially, the, 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 uh, the neighborhood's been turning over in terms of generationally. And so we're probably the fourth or fifth family with kids, young kids to move in and to see the kids just like we have this cul-de-sac and there's an island in the middle with, with a large tree in it. And there's this, like, that's like this vortex or whirlwind of kids going around in a circle on their bikes and on their, their, uh, their scooters and all kinds of things. And it's a wonderful time. We were out there and I was in the lawn chair talking to some of the other guys. We had, we had a wonderful time. We were sharing. Okay? Jesus is saying... That the broad is the road that leads to destruction. That we, we, don't, we don't grasp what's good for us. And when I turn to my child and I say, sweetie, sweetheart, buddy, no one cares. That is an act not of being mean. It's an act of insensitivity. It's an act of love. It's an act of love. And you know, there's actually, a, that, that this, 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 this summons to the word actually is, reflects an aspect of Jesus that, is, that we don't often think about. It's an aspect of his, we might call it almost like a, a loving indifference. I don't care. If you want to go the path of that is wide, if you want to enter through that gate that is, that is broad, you go for it. You do what feels good. You, you, you live life according to your two-year-old palate, and you see how it goes for you. And so when we come to the Ten Commandments, and especially when we come to the Fourth Commandment, we don't come sniffing like three-year-olds and wondering if this commandment is good for us or not. We come before a Heavenly Father who knows what we need before we ask him, a heavenly father who is all wise, who made us. Think about that. He knows you better than you know you. How many times, does, does, as a kid, I did this all the time, and I see it now in my kids, when one of our parents says, I mean, I, I do it all the time. My mom would say to me, Bruce, I think you're tired. And what would I say? I'm not tired. No, I'm not right? Our parents know us better than, we know, better than we know ourselves. In the fourth commandment, our Father is saying, you're tired. It's time for some rest. It's time for rest. So as we come to the fourth commandment, let's do it as children who are ready to hear from a Father who wants to give us rest you know, um, 
as we come to the fourth commandment, will we, will we, will we, we can enter it as, as young little ones who are willing to, to hear of the wisdom of God's ways, or we can come and we can see if, it, if we can you know, fit in the fourth commandment to our very busy and very important schedule. It's not about you, but I, I don't know about you, but I am incredibly important. And I'll see if I can fit it in. Will we respond to the fourth commandment like Phoebe and Friends? I don't know if you remember Phoebe and Friends. You know, this is the 1990 sitcom Friends. Once Phoebe was asked if she would help one of the others assemble furniture at their apartment. And she said, oh, I wish I could, but I don't want to. <laughs> oh, fourth commandment, wish I could, but I don't want to. Yuck. Ugh. Well, let's, as we turn to the fourth commandment, we can, we, you, last week we taught, we summarized the theology of the meaning of it. And as we come to the fourth commandment, uh, we, um, you might be surprised how things like good food, and we know that, for example, working out, sometimes if you haven't worked out for a long time, or even when I do work out regularly, you kind of do it, and you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is terrible. In fact, I'll often kind of joke with the guys I'm working out with. I'll, say, I'll look at them, I'll say, are you sure this is good for us? Because it doesn't feel that way in the moment. In fact, if, one of, if you go once to the gym and you add after that next day or two, you're going to be just going to be sore, going to be hurting. You're going to think, how is this possibly in any way good for me? What, what, what's different? Or it's like when you brush your teeth and you do it once. And you think, did that do anything? Did that really accomplish anything? But try not brushing your teeth for five years and see what happens. Right? There are certain rhythms of life, there are routines that we enter into that in the moment, it seems like nothing is happening. And yet over a course of time, over a trajectory, it makes, the, it makes all the difference in the world. And that is, exactly, that is exactly how the Sabbath works. Now there was a, about I think three or four years ago, there was a, an article published in USA Today. And it was uh, written by, or it was a summary of a report, a study, a 20-year study that the, the, the Harvard School of Public Health did uh, looking at, um, at well, I'll, I'll just read it to you. I mean, it says, start out here. It says, if one, if one could conceive of a single elixir, you know, the drink, you know, like a drink, and a single elixir, a potion, to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans, at no personal cost, what value would society place on it? Going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed that when consumed, this potion, when, when, when this potion was consumed just once a week, the concoction would reduce mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period of time. How urgently would we want to make it, a, make it publicly available? And it goes on to describe how the, uh, several professors at, the university, at Harvard University have shown that weekly religious observance transforms not only spiritual, not only social, but even physical, our physical lives. That people live, people who go to church regularly, go to some sort of religious uh, are part of some sort of religious community who, who meet at least once a week together for a formal time of, of, of worship and fellowship, that those people live on average of at least 10 to 15 years longer. There are signs of far greater mental health and physical health as well. And it goes, I won't go into the article, just lists one after another the benefits 
of regular weekly religious attendance. And it's quick to make a qualification. As more and more Americans today, they, they identify themselves as, as what is it, um, SBNR. Have you seen this on forums, SBNR? Spiritual, but not religious. Oh, I'm spiritual. And the article is very quick to point out that that doesn't do anything for anybody in terms of the, the, the social, spiritual, physical, mental well-being. It does nothing. You said you have to actually get up in a car and go somewhere. You actually have to be part of a community. This is an elixir, says Harvard University, that if observed over time, can transform your life. And it goes on to list all just the, 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 the holistic benefits of being part of a community of faith over a long period of time. Think about that. The fourth commandment is there for us. The man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Last week, let me just summarize our, our summary of, the, 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 to summarize the fourth commandment here. We said that for the fourth commandment, it was about this. It's about this idea that we all know that in our world, as a small persons in a very big world, where there are forces at play all around us that are bigger than we are, in a world where we have needs. I need water. I need food. I, I, I need all, all manner of things. In a world of hunger, where I have needs, in a, wor- in a world of harm, where there are things that can hurt us, where we need protection, In a world of hunger and harm, the fourth commandment says that we, that we all, every one of us, you, your son or daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your ox and your donkey, the foreigner, the illegal immigrant in your midst, that all of us all of us are able to serve six days. Not frenetically, <sighs> we're able to serve, not to strive, not just, there to, you know, just, just work entirely, but to serve and to serve faithfully. To serve faithfully six days and then on the seventh, cease or stop. That's what the word Shabbat means. Shabbat in Hebrew means to cease, to stop, right? To cease and desist. Whatever you're doing, why can they do this? In a world of hunger and harm, why can they do this? Because God, says the fourth commandment, God is sovereign to provide. He created all things. He created us as a provider, and he is sovereign not only to provide, but the fourth commandment says that he's sovereign to protect us. And so he speaks of, of, uh, in our passage here, it speaks of the exodus, it speaks of God delivering, protecting his people from oppression, bringing them out of the land of Egypt and bringing them to a place of provision in the land of Canaan. So in a world of hunger and harm, we all, now all is really important, we all can serve six days and then stop on the seventh because God is sovereign. He's strong to provide. He's strong to protect. He's strong to support us in need and he's strong to to save us when we are, are in danger including danger of ourselves. And last week, as some of those of you who are in small groups, you know that we talked about the illustration I gave you kids. How many of you kids went home and asked your, give your parents a test? Did you guys give the test last week? No? Lucy, did you forget? Yeah, you know, this is, this, is, this is your one chance to go, like, test your parents. 
Take advantage of this stuff, right? So what was the illustration we used last week? The idea of the fourth commandment is that you're a player on a team, and on that team, you have an all-star player. It's not you, it's someone else. And that all-star player always ensures that you will win. And so when you play, the coach will come to you and say, hey, look, I want you to go into the game, I want you to play six minutes with all your heart, faithfully. And does it matter if you score one point or 50 points? Does it matter? No. Why? Because you have a star player. And he's going to win the day. He's the decisive agent. He's going to provide. He's going to protect. He's going to make it happen. You just show up and you get your game face on and you give six days. Whatever you got. I don't care if it's something small. You're the widow and all you got is two cents. And you, you put your two little copper coins in. That's it. You give all that you have. And Jesus will go, oh, that's so awesome. I can remember I was in grad school and there were times I'd, I'd work. I would just be working so hard six days a week. And I would think, you know, I don't know if I made any progress whatsoever. You know, working on a PhD is sort of, look like, it's sort of like baking a cake for four years. Like one cake. And you're like, I'll add some of this, add some of that, add some of this. And you just keep on adding ingredients until finally, eventually you lose track of what it is. And then the fourth year, you just sort of slide it into the oven, hoping that it turns out. It's four years of wondering if you've accomplished anything whatsoever, if you have anything meaningful to show for your life. Does that make sense? And so often your work's like that. You, you, we work, we go to different, you know, being a parent is like that. You, when you sit there and you're trying to be a mom and you think, is this, is anyone, is this doing anything? Is this working at all? So you just be faithful. So six, the fourth commandment calls us to be what? To be, to work, to serve, not, not strive, to serve faithfully. And then the seventh, to rest peacefully. Peacefully. You work, you, 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 you've been in the game, you, you maybe scored a point or two or more, however it went, those six minutes are over, and you can go sit on the bench. You're called out, you got a replacement, someone else comes in, and you sit down, you plop down, and you grab, you grab a water bottle, and you're sweaty, and you just feel good. Because you, you just did what you love to do. You love to play basketball. You love to do whatever it is. It's what the coach has called you to do. He's invited you onto the team. You're there, and now you just rest. You're not trying to get back in the game. Oh, i got to score. i got to get back in. Because you've got a star player, and he's going to win the game. And so you're, okay, you're, you're loving the game while you're playing. You're loving the game while you're watching. And so again, in the world of hunger and harm, we all, every single one of us, small and great, rich or poor, whatever, whatever, whatever color we are, whatever class we are, we serve six days and we cease on the seventh because God is strong. He's sovereign to provide and sovereign to to protect us. You know, I, this, the Sabbath is so good for us. I can remember a, um, when I was out in Boulder, Colorado, I was actually at this, I was going through seminary and I went out to do a summer internship in Boulder, Colorado. It was just beautiful. This is in 2006. I can't believe it's been so long ago. And I had lunch with a guy named Dan. And Dan uh, was a, a professor of music composition, a music, music composition at, uh, there at uh, the, the University of Boulder. Phenomenally gifted. His wife, uh, Singai, was a concert pianist. She had performed for several U.S. presidents and had toured internationally. She was, she was awesome. Both he, Dan, and his wife, Singai, were tireless workers. In fact, Dan told me that as a pianist, his wife, Singai, practiced literally every day, seven, eight, nine hours. Can you imagine that? her full-time job that we did. She never missed a day. And they got married, 
And the concept of, for both of them, the concept of taking a vacation, even a weekend getaway, was just totally foreign. Totally foreign to them. And, 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 and as, as for him, when he was an undergrad student, he would compose all the time. I mean, even as an undergrad. And so he, and he, he received tremendous acclaim. In fact, I think it was like Time Magazine or one of the major news magazines rated him as one of the most gifted composers under the age of 30. Think about that. So Dan would compose pieces for, like, you know, for, for, for orchestras like the Philadelphia Philharmonic. Both had been Christians for a couple of years and began attending church regularly. Then one day their pastor visited and he shared with them about this thing called the Sabbath. It's an idea of a day of rest. And I remember, I'll never forget this. Dan said to me, it was such a radical idea, utterly foreign to us. And then he said this, it required an entire shift in our thinking. We really had to trust God. There was something that ironically seemed so totally, un- seemed so totally unnecessary. And he says, but now, but now we both have come to love the Sabbath and to look forward to it immensely. We actually cease all work on Saturday at 6 p.m. and we don't start up again until the following evening at 6 p.m. It has been a revolutionary thing for us, something that we never knew that we always really needed. So it's good for us. But you know what? It's not only good for us. The Sabbath is good for the world. It's good for the outsider. How so? My father, when he was in college, he was, a, um, he was not a Christian. He, um, he loved to do, he loved the outdoors. Um, they lived in Seattle. He grew up in the Seattle area in Washington, and he would he'd go hiking all the time. And just hiking outdoors, you name it. In the wintertime, he would go skiing. He was just this, I mean, just ski addict. And he, uh, one time he went with a, a buddy of his, and they had, uh, you know, what my dad would always do, he would go up on Friday night, you know, or maybe early Saturday morning, and you'd go skiing, and, um, and he, would, uh, he, he would go, you know, pick, pick a friend with her, and they'd come back Sunday night. That's what you do the whole weekend skiing, right? Well, he went with this one guy and just assumed that they would be there the whole weekend. And when the guy, Saturday night, said, hey, well, it's been awesome. This is great. I need to get back tomorrow morning. And my dad said, what? Excuse me? We got a whole other day. He said, no, no, I, I need to get back tomorrow. I, I have church. Tomorrow's a Sabbath. My dad just like looked at him like, are you kidding me? And then my, as my dad thought about it, they're driving home that night. My dad's like processing like what just happened, right? He's starting to realize that actually this guy maybe is part of something or knows something that he doesn't know. Maybe, maybe this is this weird thing that seems so constraining what am I missing out on? What is it that he's doing here that he would actually give up skiing to go to church? That's just, that's just stupid. Just bizarre. And it's something that stuck with my dad. And, so that, and it was actually several years after that, that he came to faith in Jesus. And he said, you know, that has always stuck with me. It was this moment in my life where someone acted in this very different way, in this very strange way. And this is, this would have been, I don't even know what it would have been. It would have been the late late 60s, early 70s. Okay, long before, think about how time is in the last 30, even 30 years has been so de-Christianized. The blue laws, all of that is gone, right? How we think about the Sabbath is just almost completely absent, right? Except for the third, third largest uh, 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 fast food chain, right? 
Okay, Chick-fil-A, all right, just, you know, they're not open, just, just those of you who've never had Christian chicken, right? Um, um, so, so, so my father, he said, you know what, he said, as an outsider, as someone who actually had, you know, he had been, he was religious, I mean, they were like, they were Episcopalian of some sort. And it was just a shocking thing. It's loud in today's world when you and I observe the Sabbath. It's weird. It's loud. It turns heads. It creates, you know, the cartoon bubble, right? It creates the cartoon. So no one may say anything. But be like, okay. Right? It's this, this, this time where everyone just stops. And, what are you doing? So it's good for us, and it's good for the world. Now I just want to take a few minutes. Give me, me like five, ten minutes here, and I want to just apply this. I want to talk about what this would look like in our lives. The first thing that we need to ask you know, in obedience to the, fifth, to the fourth commandment is to ask this question. Is there, is there anybody under us? Is there anybody under us? Because that's what's so important. You, your son or daughter, so if you're a parent, obviously you need to be thinking as a parent, your manservant, maidservant, that's employees. You have, you have those underneath you in some way, those who are um, on your team, you're supervising in some way. We need the, the, the fourth commandment, which I mentioned last week, one prime minister called the greatest labor law ever passed in history, the greatest worker protection law ever passed in history. Are there persons under you that you need to protect? from themselves or from uh, forces at play that would force them to work? Are you making sure that they are able to celebrate the Sabbath? This is central. What did I say? In a world of hunger and harm, we all, we all, it's not this private, personal thing that I go do by myself. It's I am to make sure, and I'm looking at you parents. So, I mean, let me just mention again, if you are a supervisor at work, you're an employer, it is imperative that you think of ways. Even if you may say, Bruce, look, I don't really have that much influence. Well, you use what influence you've got. Ask, inquire, say, you know what? We just, I, I want my people, I think my people will be more productive. They will be happier. Their way of living life will be better if we give them some segment of time to do this. And, it doesn't, and I realize that some of you are in fields where Sunday is not an option. You're not here this morning, Right? You're not here this morning. Why? Because you've got you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, of jobs, whether it's either, it's either uh, something like um, 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 it's a retail or it's something um, even more essential, like, you, you know, far more essential, like utility or it's medicine. These are, these, are, these are labors of love where we're just required to work. Well, arguing, moving, uh, moving toward a day, another day off. Obviously, for me, the Sabbath is a work day. And so 6 p.m. Thursday night, everything shuts down. And 6 p.m. Friday, Friday, Friday evening, things start back up. But for me, Friday is the day that I do everything I can to go off the grid. You may text me on Friday, unless it's urgent, I simply won't respond. Because I'm not that important. I'm not, the, I'm, not the all, I'm not this all-star player. So I'm asking you, are people underneath you, and parents, I'm looking especially at you, are you insisting that your children observe the Sabbath? That means no homework. So what you do, you make it clear on Monday, and you make this established routine in your home. Okay, guys, when you get home on Friday, guess what? You're going to do some homework. Friday, Saturday, you're going to finish all of your homework and get it done. 
And that's a hard thing at first, it's this challenge with your children, but after a while they realize, you know what, getting your homework done early in the weekend is what? Really, really nice, right? And so you're training your children to do something that may be very counterintuitive to them, but you say, no homework. Not only no, so what you're asking them to do, again, this is important, you're saying, what am I doing the other, how am I serving the Lord the other six days of the week? And they may be just phenomenally gifted and very intelligent. And they're in all honors classes. And every day of the week, they are killing it in the classroom. And you love that. You celebrate that. You, you, you praise them for it. You thank God for it. And then on the seventh day, there's no more. It's not, oh, you know, they're especially intelligent, so let's, let's have them play. Let's have them, you know, let's have them learn and study on the, seventh, on the seventh day. No, on the Sabbath day, no. Or let's say, oh, you know, they're exceptionally gifted athletically. Six days a week, I mean, they're going to be practicing, they're going to be playing baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever. On the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, no. I don't care if you miss out on a league. I don't care if you miss out on the game. No, and that will be so loud in our culture today. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry, your Johnny can't play? No, it's the Sabbath. I'm sorry. But your son's so gifted. Why would you want him to miss out? It's the Sabbath. I don't want to miss out on the Sabbath. And that may mean, that may mean real sacrifice. It may mean that, that, that Billy or Johnny or Sally may not be the star that they could be. And guess what? They're not the star player. Okay? So parents, employee, employer, supervisor, are you protecting those under you? Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is Preparation. So protection of those underneath. The second thing is preparation. To celebrate the Sabbath, it is so important that we prepare. The Sabbath, obedience to the Sabbath doesn't start on the Sunday. It starts actually early in the week when we, when, we, when we do something like, okay, are we done with our homework? Okay, are we done with this? Okay, have we, think of the things that you are tempted to do on the Sabbath day that are work-related that you can do earlier in the week that you can prepare for. For my mom, growing up, my mom would often, um, she had, every Sunday after church, we would come home famished, because the preacher, like me, was very long-winded. And, and uh, we would come, and my mom had always prepared either one of two things. We'd either have hot dogs with beans, or we'd have chili. And we're talking, like, just simply out of a can. My mom would have it all ready to go Saturday night. She'd put it out there. So when we got home, she'd literally turn on, the, turn on the oven, pour these things thin, heat them up, and we would all feast together. And you know, those lunches, those Sunday lunches of simple hot dogs and chili are some of the fondest memories I have as a kid. Yeah, remember having chili? We have American cheese on chili. Now listen, not to critique American cheese. I'm not to critique my mother anyway, but, you know, it was just American cheese. It could have been a little better, right? But that was not the point. The point is that we were together as a family, that we were resting, that we were all there laughing, talking together. It was a beautiful Sabbath meal because there had been preparation, minimal work involved. Preparation. What are the things that you need to do to prepare to be ready for the Sabbath? Now let's just briefly walk through the day. You get up on a, on a Sunday morning. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. Maybe it's the rest of the week. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you just getting up at the crack of dawn? Maybe you're going to sleep in on the Sabbath a little more. A couple of hours or so. Maybe you're going to wake up. And in our house, what we do is we have a, you know, we have a, a speaker system. And we, I take my phone out. And we connect it to Bluetooth. And we just we play uh, praise music. We play all kinds. of Maybe it's... Maybe it's um, classical, maybe it's whatever, but you start playing music. And it's just, it's just worshipful. And people, all of my kids, they'll start singing the music. We start singing out loud, whatever. We're singing, we're preparing our voices, getting ready to, to go to worship together. And then one of the things that we do, real quick, grab your, grab your, grab your Bible here and turn to the Psalms. 
One of the things that I like to do, I want to recommend to you, turn to the Psalms here. This is, we'll turn to page one, uh, sorry, five. Um, this is Psalm 127. Psalm 127. There's a wonderful psalm. These are, these, I'm going to give you two, two psalms. You're thinking, oh, brother, you want me to read two psalms every Sunday? These psalms are like three verses each, four verses each, okay? So just hold on. Psalm 127. For those of you who are workaholics, maybe you will turn to Psalm 127. 127. Remember that? Psalm 127 where it says this. Are you ready? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Now, is that a, not, you know, for, for, for workaholics, that's a very important verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand and watch in vain. So verse 1 is about provision. It's about building your house. It's about, it's about you know, bu- building your life and building your house. The second, one is, the, second, uh, the second half of the verse is all about protection. So who's the key provider and key protector? It's the Lord. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior are children born in one's youth. What what, what is your greatest influence? How will you make the greatest impact in your life? Who will forget you immediately after you retire? Not your kids. Your company will. And he's saying here, if you invest in your children you invest in your children, they will be like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Verse 5, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will, not, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Because kids do that. When you see, when you see a, man, you know, a, a, a man or woman's children and they're following the Lord and they love Jesus and they're acting honorably and nobly, it's like that. nothing, nothing speaks louder. Nothing speaks louder. So we invest in this. So a very simple psalm. Psalm 127. Now turn to just the next page, Psalm 131. Very top. This is for those of you who worry. You tend to worry. You tend to just be frenetic. You tend to like think about what needs, you know, the, the big things that need to be done. How, how's this going to happen? How's that going to happen? And here's David, King David, this incredibly skilled, gifted man of influence, a man of control, a man of uh, strategy, a man who's incredibly gifted in, in, in poetry and lyrics and, and, and music. And he says this, my heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. That, those, that language of, of great, great matters or things too wonderful, those are actually, it's actually, those are descriptions of the things that God does. He's saying, I will not concern myself with you catastrophes. I will not pretend to be the decisive agent. I will not pretend to be the all-star player spending my Sabbath trying to figure out how I can win the game, trying to figure out how I can provide for myself, trying to figure out how I can protect myself. He says, I will not do that. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted myself. Here's this mighty warrior saying, you know what? I'm like a little baby. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Reading these words aloud. Verse 3, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. Do you see the beauty of that? So you, maybe, you, maybe you just, just out loud, you read Psalm 127, Psalm 131, and then you get the kids, and this is really important. If you're married, you have kids, you set a time. You say, you know what? 
9.30, Good Shepherd service starts at 9.30. That means that in order to leave on time, we have to, this is the time that we need to return, that we need to leave by. And so that means that we're going to set the clock 10 minutes earlier, and we're trying to leave 10 minutes earlier, because guess what? You won't leave on time. You don't leave on time. Kids are inherently inefficient. So there will always be some crisis. Something will always go wrong. And you say, you know what? I'm gonna, we're, we're, you, my husband, wife, we are going to leave 10 minutes early. And we're going to show up to service. I'm going to show up just, you know, have, if, we, if we're just exhausted, we're going to just plop in, the, plop in the pew and just sit there and be like, oh. If it's been a good week, we have something to give, we're going to show up. And we're not going to plop in the pew. We're actually going to just talk to people. Hey, good, right to see you. Welcome. We're going to invite people in. We're going we're to just engage with them before the service starts. And then during the service, as the service starts, parents, what you're going to do? You're going to look at your kids. You're going to say, hey, kids, this is really important to mom and dad. I want you to listen. This is very much a big deal. I need to listen to that guy up front. We're going to sing this song. And you, you, you interact with them. You engage with them. And you let them know the importance of what we're doing. And you let them see you during this sermon. You let them see you leaning forward in your chair, engaged, locked in. That, mom, that, that Your kids know, wow, I guess this is important to mom and dad. I guess this matters. They see you singing all, with all your heart because this is a big deal for you. It's important. And then after the service, you, know, you, you maybe stick around for Sunday school. You, you participate, you fellowship, you interact, you engage. And the rest of the day, the rest of the day is a day of rest, a day of ceasing. And you know, those of you who are really, maybe, maybe your, your job is just physically demanding. It's just your manual labor, and it's just, it's just frankly exhausting. Ceasing for you on the Sabbath looks like taking a nap the entire afternoon. For some of you, you sit on a desk the entire day. And you're just sitting there, you have no windows, nothing. It's just, right? You just sit there and you work away. Ceasing for you looks like getting out and going for a long hike or for a jog, or, or, or horseback riding, whatever it might be, you get out and you're active. It's ceasing whatever you were doing and stopping and, and, and resting in the Lord. Let me say one brief thing. I just want to encourage a, um, listen, this is not, I'm not trying to be legalistic, I'm not trying to be stickler. I just want to say that I think it's wise in the Sabbath to keep TV watching to a minimum. Don't not just all of you get together and stare, stare at something. There's a difference between entertainment, where you're passive, and you're just sort of absorbing, uh, uh, right? And recreation. Recreation is where you're active. So, for example, watching a movie is, is an entertainment. Reading a book out loud to your kids is recreation. Why? Because everyone's minds, the, the imagination, it's all just, we're thinking, we're imagining, what's this like? One of the, one of the books that we've read with our kids over the years has been um, All Creatures Great and Small by James Harriet. I mean, he's a masterful storyteller. He's hilarious. And he's done with this, the, the, the veterinarian, British veterinarian, tells these wonderful stories of what it's like to be a veterinarian. They're almost always very humorous. They're brief. You pull it out, and you just read together. So this is the Sabbath. I mean, I could go on, but this is the Sabbath. And I, the final thing I would just say here is I would encourage at least 30 minutes, each and every one of you on a Sabbath, 30 minutes of just silence. The body shuts down, and you're just laying on the couch. The mind shuts down. And there's nothing happening up here. It's just... I do that. I do that on Fridays. And it's one of them sometimes the most... I mean, I just, I'm always amazed. I get it from that, I think. I, just, I didn't realize how much I needed that. 
And maybe it's for as maybe a married couple. Maybe you just you you cuddle up on the couch, cuddle up, and you just you're both there, and it's just silent. Nothing's happening. This is the commandment, the commandment to cease, to stop, to rest. What a God who calls us, who commands us to rest.